Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
morning. Everybody doing all right? I'm all right. Thank you for asking. Turn to Romans 10. We will actually start a little before Romans 10, but Romans 10 is where we begin the new information. I have written a Greek word on the board in English letters, dikaiosune. The root of that word, dikaiosune, is dikaios. The words both mean righteousness, and Paul is going to talk about righteousness a lot. You're going to see the word righteousness in much of what he says at the beginning of chapter 10. The word dikaios is that state of being right, or that state of being just. Even sometimes it's translated as holy in the way that you conduct yourself. That word dikaios has at its root decay, which means justice. In fact, in the Greek pantheon of gods and goddesses and demigods, there is a goddess by the name of decay. Usually she's represented as blind justice, the statue of a woman with a blindfold, and she's holding the scales of justice in one hand and a sword in the other hand. Well, that is the goddess of justice, weighing out people's rightness and wrongness, and then meeting out justice if they need to be punished for their wrongness. So that word, dike, dikaios, dikaiosune, this is all talking about what it is to be righteous, and Paul is going to talk about righteousness before God, the righteousness of God. He's going to argue that the Hebrews... We're trying to establish their own righteousness based in the law. And the reason, Paul says, that they went about to establish their own righteousness is that they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. And that concept, that idea, that phrase means that they were not aware, they were ignorant of the level of righteousness that is required by God. A level of righteousness that human beings simply cannot attain to, and yet it is the requirement of God. The requirement of God is absolute holiness. The requirement of God is complete righteousness. And being ignorant of what the righteousness of God really was and what the righteousness of God looked like, They thought that they could establish their own righteousness, righteousness enough that God would be obligated to accept them on the basis of their own personal earned righteousness. And what did they use as the methodology to achieve their own righteousness? The law. The law of Moses that was given to them for 1,400 years, they did those things thinking that they were establishing their own righteousness. And Paul is going to argue that the only reason that they could think like that was because they did not have any idea what the righteousness of God looked like, what the righteousness of God really is. And I think I could go further than that and say it's a problem that we as human beings all have, that we don't really comprehend what the righteousness of God really is. How high, how holy, how separate God really is. Anytime you begin to think, because we are 
sinful, egocentric human beings. Anytime you start to think that maybe you were relatively good or better than other people and that God loved you more or accepted you more on the basis of the fact that you were slightly better than someone else. Look, we can all agree that everybody in the room is better than Leon. And so if we, I'm sorry, I just, I, I, you were there, I'm sorry. And yet he agreed. Comparative righteousness, if we all said, well, we're not Hitler, we're not, I don't know, pick somebody. Pick someone who you think is just generally not a good person and say, well, I'm, I'm better than them. Therefore, comparatively, I'm more righteous than they are. Therefore, God must be able to accept me more. God must like me more. God must love me more because I'm definitely among the more righteous of the people on the planet. Okay, as soon as you start thinking like that, you're simply unaware of what the righteousness of God is. You don't know what the righteousness of God looks like. And that is the only reason that any of us, and Paul is going to argue especially Israel, the only reason that any of us would go about to establish our own righteousness is because we don't know what the righteousness of God is, what it looks like, what it means, how high and holy and separate and totally apart from us the righteousness of God really, really is. That's why I wrote the word on the board to really drive home to you that there is this thing, this righteousness that is required by God from you in order for you to stand in his presence forever. How do you get that level of righteousness? Can you get it through your work, through your flesh, through your desire to do good things? Or is there another methodology? Paul is going to argue that Israel did not achieve that righteousness, even though they had the law, even though they had a zeal for God, even though they had the revelation of God of what righteousness would look like if anybody could do it. The law did not give anybody the righteousness that was adequate to stand before God. If you're going to be righteous before God, you can't do it any other way but faith in Christ. That's the whole argument. If you got to go now, if you have somewhere to be, you've just heard the whole sermon. Now all I'm going to do is read what Paul has said. We're just going to expand on the concept. But all Paul is arguing is that the law can't help you in establishing your own righteousness. Only through the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ can you actually stand before God and not fry. You got it? Got it. That's the whole point this morning. If you walk away with nothing else and somebody says to you, what did Jim talk about this morning? You know, because he rambled on for about an hour. Just so you all know, I'm going to be rambling on for about an hour. Well, if you just say, he talked about real righteousness and how you get real righteousness. The righteousness of God can only be established through faith in Christ. Got that? Got that sir. Okay, so those are the introductory words for what we're going to read. Start reading at Romans 9, verse 30, remembering again that there are not chapter and verse numbers. Paul was not writing along 
And at the end of saying, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed, he did not then write a big 10 right after that and say, chapter 10 from Paul, verse 1. The versification was added much later. Paul is still continuing to talk about the same thing, same subject. And the subject is, how do we get righteousness? Verse 30, chapter 9. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. They were not looking for righteousness. They were not actively trying to keep the law. They were not trying to establish themselves or their own righteousness. And yet, despite the fact that they did not go pursuing righteousness, nevertheless, they attained righteousness. Same word every time. It's dikaiosune. Every time Paul is saying that righteousness that Gentiles were not looking for, Gentiles nevertheless attained. And they didn't even have the law. They weren't at Mount Sinai. They weren't in covenant with God. They weren't part of the community of Israel. And yet somehow these Gentiles who had no methodology to work with nevertheless achieved righteousness. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. That's what the Gentiles had that Israel, Paul is going to argue in a moment, that Israel did not have. Because Israel had the law of Moses, they thought that by keeping the law of Moses, at least to some degree, that they were establishing and attaining their own righteousness through the works of their flesh. Paul is going to tell you they did not establish their own righteousness through the law. It is an impossibility. The only real righteousness is that righteousness that comes by faith. Now, through the years, whenever I say that, someone will say to me, but that's too easy. I mean, if God is a sovereign judge, he cannot have made it that simple to stand before him. If he's that righteous and holy, and we're really that sinful and depraved, then it can't be as simple as just believe Jesus, and you're going to be okay again. That's usually the argument. No, you've got to do something, they claim. You've got to do something, which is why so much of standard religion in the West says, yes, Jesus, and. Yes, Jesus, faith in Jesus, and make sure that you hold up these particular standards that our church holds. And then you're going to be okay. But Paul doesn't say it's faith in Christ and some stuff. He just says it's faith in Christ. He makes it that simple. He makes it that easy. He makes it that direct. All you have to do is have faith in Christ. Now, is that easy? No. No. Because our sinful self, our sinful flesh is legalistic by nature and we want to do something. 
it's really hard for us to think that we are going to cast ourselves out into eternity on nothing more than faith in Christ. That's really hard to get a hold of. Tell people. Just tell people generally. Tell them, look, you don't have to do anything. You just have to be completely convinced that Christ is your utter righteousness for all of eternity. Does that come easy to people? No, absolutely not. Faith is not easy. Faith is difficult. Faith is standing on the word of God, planting yourself on the word of God and saying, I will not be moved from the word of God, even though my circumstances, even though my own mind, even though my own heart, even though everything else is trying to rip me away from the truth of God's word, I will stand here believing that Jesus Christ is adequate And whenever my own sinfulness, my depravity wakes me up in the middle of the night and reminds me of where I've been and what I've done. And as soon as it reminds you of that kind of stuff, the stuff that drives you crazy in the middle of the night, it's really hard to think, yeah, but Christ. Instead, you'll start thinking, I got to do stuff. The Catholic Church has made a whole history and living off the notion that you got to do stuff. you got to start by confessing. you got to come confess to a priest that you did stuff, and then he'll give you stuff to go do. Go say this many Hail Marys, and go say some Our Fathers, and go light a few candles to Mary, and go, go do stuff. Go do penitent things to prove that you're really, really sorry. And when God sees that you've done enough stuff to prove that you're really, really sorry, then he'll forgive you. That, that's just wrong. The Bible says the cure for all your sinfulness across the board is Christ. The finished work of Christ. The redemptive work of Christ. The vicarious suffering of Christ. He has suffered enough for your sin. You don't have to suffer for it. He has already redeemed you off the slave market of sin. You don't have to redeem yourself. He has already been utterly and completely gracious and merciful to you. You don't have to go prove to him you're worth it. He already decided before the foundation of the world to write your name down as somebody who belonged to him. You don't have to convince him to save you. Do you understand all that? It's hard, isn't it? It Even as I'm saying it, you're testing every word and going, I I don't know. I don't know, Jim. I liked it better when I went to a church that told me to do stuff. Because the church that told me to do stuff at least gave me some sense of psychological reassurance that I was going to be okay eternally because I had my stuff. But the Bible says nothing about you being able to establish your own righteousness. Look, here's the reality. Israel had the law. Ten Commandments, 613 ordinances. God said, this is what righteousness would look like if somebody did it. In a moment, Paul is going to say, Moses said that a man who actually lives by the law, who actually does the law, who keeps the law, can achieve life by it, except that nobody did it. 
Because it's a hard, hard law. So nobody could do it. Not because the law is bad. The law is perfectly good. We already saw that in Romans 7. Law is perfectly good. The problem is us. The problem is we can't do it. Because of our sin, because of our fallen nature, we can't do it. So Israel had 1,400 years, and during that period, not one, not one person achieved righteousness by doing the stuff in the law. So if I stand up here and tell you, get busy and do stuff, and then you say, what stuff should we do, Jim? And I say, well, let's go look in the law and see what it says. Do the stuff in the law and you'll achieve your own righteousness. If I tell you that, it may feel good, it may satiate your flesh, it may take some of the fear away from you, but it's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Gentiles who were not pursuing righteousness achieved righteousness. How did they do that? They attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. They never achieved that law. They never established that law. They never got to the end of what that law was purported to do. Just do the law, do it perfectly, do it perpetually, do it through your whole life, and then you can live by it. But no one could do it. As a consequence, Paul draws this contrast and says, Israel, by the law, were pursuing their own righteousness, but nobody achieved it. Nobody attained to that law. Meanwhile, Gentiles, who weren't even looking for righteousness... They attained righteousness because they had faith in Christ. And faith in Christ achieves righteousness. I'm going to pound away at this this morning. If you're already tired of it, take a nap, talk amongst yourselves, go run around the block a couple times. This is what we're going to be pounding away at all morning because, man, it is ingrained in us to think, I got to do stuff. I got to do something. Now, let me be really, really clear here. Once you are saved, once the Spirit of God takes up habitation in you, once you are aware of the righteousness of God and your own sinfulness, you will do good stuff. You will pursue the things of God. That will be the bent, the proclivity of your life. But you didn't do it to get saved. You will do it because you are saved. You will walk, as Paul says, in the good works that God foreordained you're going to walk in. But he foreordained that you're going to walk in the good works because he foreordained that he was going to save you. So having saved you, he then ordains that you walk in good works. But so much of modern religion, not just modern Christianity, but modern religion around the world says, if you want to have whatever the benefit of our religion is, if you want your 70 virgins, or if you want nirvana, or if you want the that that is behind all that, if you want whatever it is that this religion is offering you, you got to do stuff. You got to kill the infidels. Or you got to meditate your way into nirvana. 
You, just, you gotta do stuff, and too much of Christianity has bought into that same idea, that same concept, that if you want what this religion offers, heaven forever, presence with God forever, if you want that, you gotta do stuff. And the Bible keeps saying over and over, it's a gift. It's a gift of grace. It's a gift God gives you. And if God has put his spirit in you and intends to save you, he will produce in you faith, confidence, hope. And all of that confidence and hope and faith is all based in the finished work of Christ. And thereby you achieve actual righteousness. God grants you, gifts you the righteousness that you so desperately need. You get it? I'm still introducing. I thought I was going to get somewhere this morning. We haven't even made it to chapter 10 yet. Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. They pursued it by works. They pursued it by their own flesh, by their own legalism, by their own keeping a standard. That's how they went about trying to establish their own righteousness. And as a consequence, they did not arrive at that law or that righteousness. They did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, by works. And so they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it's written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be, the NASB says, disappointed. That's where we ended last week. But that actually doesn't do justice to the Greek word. The Greek word has that kata prefix on the top of it. And I've told you before that kata means down or pushing down. And it's a word for Shame, And so literally that compound word means to shame down. It means disgrace. It means to confound people, to dishonor people. That's the word that Paul is using here. And he says those who come to Christ who believe in him will not be shamed down. Disappointed doesn't quite do it justice. Paul is going to use that same verse again in just a few minutes. This is a very important verse to Paul, that those who come to Christ, those who believe in Christ, will not ever be shamed down. So then you can have confidence that if you're coming to Christ instead of trying to achieve righteousness through your own works, that God is not going to shame you for your lack of goodness Instead, he is going to grant you, give you the very goodness and righteousness you need to stand before him. He's not going to shame you if you have faith in Christ. You get that? That, That's a much more valuable word than just those that believe in Christ will not be disappointed. (laughs) I mean, I've bought things before that have arrived in the mail and I've been kind of disappointed. That doesn't look like the picture. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's talking about the shame. And by the way, can you imagine what the shaming of God would look like? God knows how to shame people. But that's not going to happen to anyone who believes in Christ. Chapter 10, verse 1, we're finally to the new stuff. But Paul is continuing to talk about this righteousness thing. 
Now, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, who's them in that sentence? Israel. Israel. He's already talking about Israel. Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they, Israel, did not pursue it by faith. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is their salvation. Is it worth pointing out at this juncture that Paul's attitude toward Israel is, my heart's desire, my prayer is their salvation. And yet so much of modern Christendom holds that God is done with Israel, that God is finished with Israel. They say that the church is now the new or the true Israel or the spiritual Israel. And by saying that, they're saying that Israel got so bad, Israel chasing after their foreign gods, Israel in all their sin, just reached a point of being so bad that God just said, well, then never mind, forget them. In which case, Paul is actually expressing the opposite of what God desires. God desires to get rid of Israel altogether, to wipe them out, to forget about them. And Paul says, my prayer for them is their salvation. No, I think Paul is speaking the very heart of God at this moment because all the way through the Old Testament, the prophets speak the same way. The prophets speak with one voice that God has scattered Israel, but he's not going to leave them in that scattered state. He's going to draw them back, plant them in their own land, give them a new heart, give them that heart of flesh, plant his law in their hearts, and then he's going to establish them in peace as the kingdom erupts on earth. And that's Israel's kingdom ruled over by David's greater son. So then Paul, knowing all of that prophecy, can say confidently, my hope, my prayer, my desire for Israel is their salvation. And let me just say, if that is not also your hope for Israel, then you're not truly being biblical. Is that okay to say? Yes. Yes. Okay. I bear them witness, says verse 2, That they do have a zeal for God. That word means heat, actually, that word that's translated zeal. The core word is they do have that, that desire for God, but they don't have it with knowledge. They don't have it with understanding. See, if you believe that you can obligate God by your works, even those works that are found in the law, If you believe that you can somehow be good enough, be righteous enough in and of yourself, that God is going to be pleased with your effort and therefore give you eternity in his presence because of your effort, then you don't understand. You don't have real knowledge. You don't comprehend how high and holy and righteous God really is. You don't get what the standard is to stand before God. And that was Israel's problem. Because God had given them the law, do this, do those things, do and don't do, do all of that stuff. Because God had given them that, they thought that if they just did that stuff, that would get them righteousness. So they didn't understand. They didn't have the knowledge that was necessary to comprehend the things of God and how high that righteousness of God was. Verse 3 says that. 
for not knowing, this is where the knowledge part comes in, for not knowing about God's righteousness, not comprehending how high and holy God really is, and then seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the very righteousness of God. Why didn't they subject themselves to the righteousness of God? Because they didn't know the righteousness of God. They didn't have the knowledge of what the righteousness of God actually is and what it requires. And so they decided in that state of relative ignorance that they would just go about and establish their own righteousness. And Paul says that's the problem. They have a zeal. They have a desire for God. I mean, 1,400 years of trying to keep the law. I mean, that's a genuine zeal that they have for God. The temple, the worship, the sacrificing animals. that's That's a genuine zeal for God that Israel nationally has. But that zeal is not the same as actual knowledge. And in their lack of knowledge, all that zeal couldn't help them establish their own righteousness. Shall we apply that? Yes, let's, Jim. Okay, we will. Um. Do you know anybody that has zeal for God, but lack of knowledge, lack of understanding? They don't don't quite get it. They have the energy. They're very busy. They're, They're doing stuff all the time. They talk the Christianese language, but they don't comprehend what it really takes that salvation is a work of grace by God and so they're busy trying to establish their own righteousness based on the stuff that they are doing Paul says that's exactly what Israel's problem was it wasn't their lack of zeal it was their lack of knowledge it was their lack of understanding and knowing God's righteousness so seeking to establish their own righteousness They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now get this straight, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That Greek word end, we got to talk about that so that we understand what Paul is saying when he says that is the end of the law. It is the word telos. And what it means is the point of limitation. It's the projected limit of anything. Here, I can explain it better this way. Is anybody familiar with uh, invisible fence? Anybody here got a dog and you've ever used invisible fence? Are you familiar with the concept? Okay, if you've got a dog and he's on your property and you don't want to have to build a physical fence in order to try to keep him in your property, what you do is you get him an electric collar And then the company comes out and they bury around the borders of your land a wire that's electrified. And then your dog is fine as long as he's on your property. But when he gets to the edges of your property, he gets a shock in that collar. And so he learns that's the limit to how far I can go. That's telos. That's the limit to how far I can go. I can go. I'm okay. I can go. But I can only go to here. And that is the end point of how far I can go. You get the idea? Yes, sir. Christ is the limit 
He's the end point of the law. And notice that Paul says, of the law for righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. So, 1,400 years, Israel is told, you need to follow the law. You need to pursue the law. You need to keep the law. And they believed that that was establishing their own righteousness. But that was because they were ignorant of what the righteousness of God really was, what the righteousness of God really looked like. But once Christ came and faith in Christ for righteousness is revealed, that makes Christ the telos, the end point, the termination point of the law for righteousness. In other words, if you're still pursuing the law for righteousness, it can't ever establish your righteousness because Christ has already been revealed and he is the end point of the law for righteousness. Do you get the picture? So then, the only way to get righteousness is through him. The only way to get righteousness is faith in him. Faith in his finished work. Faith in his grace. Faith in everything that he has done for you since the foundation of the world. That is the way real righteousness is attained because he is the limit of the law. Got it? Okay. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the qualifier right there. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You have to have faith. Now that word believes there is pistuo. We have talked several times here about the fact that in the Greek language, pistus is faith. The verb form of it is pistuo, which means faithing, having faith. But in the English language, we don't have any word for faith as a verb. And so we're stuck with the word believes. And then in our modern pluralistic society, people will tell you that whatever you believe is valid just because you believe it. And nobody wants to tell you that what you believe is wrong. So you go ahead and believe whatever you want to believe, and we're stuck with the word believe in the Bible. But the word actually in the Greek is pistuo, which means having faith. So Paul is still referring to having faith in the finished work of Christ. Don't let the word believe in the English confuse you into thinking that whatever you believe about Christ is fair game. Well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe he was a pretty good guy. He was a good and a wise teacher. He was probably really walked on the planet. That's not faith in Christ right there. Faith in Christ says, I am confident that everything he says he did, he actually did. Everything he's performed for me on my behalf before God, he actually did. He died. He buried. He resurrected again. Paul is going to say that that is the profession of all Christians, that we Confess with our mouth, we believe in our heart that Christ died, that he raised again, that he sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, that he makes intercession for us. That's what the content of Christian faith really is. So all of us who have that faith, who believe to us, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. 
You understand the sentence now? Okay. Now it gets even more interesting. Are you interested so far? Yes. Okay. This takes a little detective work. And we're going to spend a little time back in the book of Deuteronomy. Because Paul is going to say something here that just, it's just fascinating to me. Paul is drawing this enormous contrast off a hint that he dug out of the book of Deuteronomy. So we're going to go look at it. Verse 5 says, Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law, that's one kind, that's one category, righteousness that is based on the law, shall live, now the NASB says, by that righteousness. Up until now, Paul has been saying, over and over again. Righteousness, 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 righteousness. For some reason at this moment, he chose to use the word autos. Now, that word is a reflexive pronoun. Um, Let's say I was talking about my wife, which I often do. Once I have said her name, Janine, you now know that I'm talking about her. See, I just did it. I used the word her. And when I used the word her, you knew that I was referring to Janine, because that's a reflexive pronoun. You get the idea there? Okay, that, that's what autos is, and it's used a lot of different ways in the Greek language, but it always reflects back to whatever I was just talking about. That word autos has worked its way into the English language. If you have something that's mobile, it means it moves. But if it moves by itself, that's automobile. We just call it an automobile. It moves by itself. You get the idea? We know the Greek word for writing is graphe. And so if the person doing the writing writes his own name, which is reflective of himself, that is autographe. We just call it autograph. So that word has made its way into the English language in a lot of different words. You can think of a lot, automatic, autonomic. You know, it, it always has that root of reflecting back to the thing as if the thing itself is what's being referred to. You got it? Paul at this point says, Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live, and the whole phrase, by that righteousness, is just autos in the Greek. He's reflecting back to the righteousness that is based on the law. The righteousness that is based on the law, that man will live by that. Got it? Got it. Verse 6, the righteousness that is based on faith. Faith is outside you. Faith isn't something you do. Faith is not you accomplishing it in and of yourself. Faith is the thing that God grants you. And then you have the faith like Abraham had faith. And then Abraham exchanged that faith for righteousness. So Paul very specifically at this moment reflexively spoke backward of the righteousness that comes by the law. They do it. 
But then that is different than the righteousness that comes by faith. God does that. That comes to you through God. Are you getting some sense of what's going on here? And now he's going to prove his point by quoting out of the book of Deuteronomy. And he says, the righteousness that is based on faith says this. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? It says, the word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, according to Paul, the word of faith which we are Caruso, which we are preaching. Now, you could read right through that and not realize what Paul just did. we got to go look at the book of Deuteronomy to understand what Paul just did because he was quoting from the scripture, quoting right from the Pentateuch, quoting right from the law, and then he was taking those statements that were made about the law and applying them to Christ. Here, I'll show you what I mean. Keep your finger right there in Romans 9. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30 is uh, the children of Israel have been traveling for 40 years in the wilderness. They've made it to Moab. It looks like they're finally the second generation that has left Egypt. It looks like they're finally going to enter the land. And so before they do, one more time, the law is recited to them. One more time, the covenant with God is reestablished to them. And God takes the time in chapter 29 to spell out how bad he's going to punish them if they don't keep his law. And then he opens chapter 30 by saying, now I know you're not going to keep it. Yeah, I already know you're, you're not going to do it. You're not going to keep it. He already knows that the law was given to prove how sinful they were. It was never given to establish their own righteousness, even though they thought that that was the mode, the method that they were going to use in order to establish their own righteousness. So he starts right out in chapter 30, verse 1, by saying, So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you remember them, you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you, has banished you. Because part of the curse of the law was God was going to banish them out of Israel and send them into all the surrounding Gentile nations. So he says here, when all that has come on you, because he knows it's coming on them, he knows what's going to happen. They haven't even entered Israel yet. They haven't entered the land of Canaan yet. And he knows what's going to happen. He's going to scatter the northern ten tribes. He knows that Israel's going to go through the Babylonian captivity. He knows all that's coming. So he says to them, when all these things come upon you, both the blessing and the curse, and you remember, when you bring it to mind, in all the nations where I've scattered you, which is his way of saying, I'm already telling you, you're you're not going to obey the law and I'm going to scatter you. But in the nations where I scatter you, you're going to bring it to mind. You're going to remember. How does he know that? Because he has promised through all the prophets time and time again that he's going to remind them. 
He's going to draw them back. He's going to bring them back to their land. Verse 2. When you remember, when you call it to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God, and you obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from your captivity, and he will have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord God will scatter you. And from there he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than he did your fathers. Okay, remember that God is telling them all this before he's even taken them into the promised land. He's fully aware of what they're going to do and what he's going to do in response. But notice that part of what he tells them is that his response is going to be, I'm going to scatter you, but then I'm going to restore you. I'm going to go get you. I'm going to go bring you back to this land. He promised that. Before he even spoke through the prophets and started saying, once they were scattered, started saying, oh, God's going to restore you. God's going to bring you back. Before he even takes them into the land, he's already saying all this. So it's a surefire guarantee, number one, that they're going to fail. They're not going to do the law because God has already told them, hey, you're not going to do it. Number two, it's a surefire guarantee he's going to scatter them. That's going to happen because God just said he's going to do it. But it's a surefire guarantee that he's also going to restore them, regather them, and bring them back to the land of Israel, which he gave to their forefathers because of the unconditional promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is everybody clear with all that? Yes. Okay, now God says something interesting, if not humorous. Moreover... This is how it's going to happen, that they're going to come back and they're going to remember him and they're going to turn to God with all their heart and all their soul. This is how it's going to happen. Verse 6, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul in order that you may live. And the Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies instead and on those who hate you and who persecute you. And you will again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your cattle, and the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers." If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, if you turn to the Lord with all your heart and your soul, because for this commandment, which I command you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. Hold on. What do you mean it's not too difficult for you? Nobody does it. That's how difficult it is. It's so difficult that nobody accomplishes it. And as a consequence, God cannot give righteousness to anybody through the law. You get what's being said here? This thing is not too hard for you. It's not too difficult for you. Nor is it out of your reach. Well, then in what way is it not too difficult? 
in Christ. That's what Paul is going to say. Paul is going to quote from this very section of Deuteronomy. And with each of these statements we're about to read, he's going to say, Christ. It's Christ that's the answer. In other words, he looked back at the book of Deuteronomy and saw that even then, God was saying, Christ is the answer for what you can't do. Look, this is the commandment which I command you today, and it is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. Verse 12, it is not up in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven to get it for us, to make us hear it, that we may observe it. Paul in Romans 10 says, The word is close to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. Don't say who's going to go up to heaven to get it for us, to get Christ for us. The next thing is, nor is it beyond the sea, in the deep, that you should say who will cross the sea for us and get it for us and make us hear it so that we may observe it. Paul says the same thing. Who's going to go into the deep, into the depth to bring Christ up for us? Paul is saying the answer to this is too hard is Christ. And that through faith in Christ, in your mouth, in your heart, the very thing that God says right here, it's not too difficult for you. It's not out of reach. But the word, verse 14, but the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you may observe it. No, the law is not just in your heart and in your mouth. The law is full of do's and don'ts. The law is full of obey, do stuff. But God said, little clue here that Paul picked up. God says, but the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you may observe it. So that the righteousness of God can come to you. So that you can Achieve the righteousness that God requires. And who's going to go into heaven to get it? And who's going to go into the depths to get it? And to help us understand it and hear it so that we may observe it. And God says the word's very near you. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth so that you may observe it. Here's what Paul does with it. Go back to the book of Romans. Starting in chapter 10 verse 6. But the righteousness that is based on faith says this. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. And then Paul writes parenthetically, that is to go bring Christ down. See, it's not the law that's the answer. It's not help me go to heaven and get me the law and then make me understand it and make me do it. The answer is Christ. If you have Christ, then you have the righteousness that God requires. Faith in Christ is how the requirements of God, which are so very, very difficult, become doable. It's not distant. It's not far away from you. The righteousness based on faith speaks thus. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. And don't say, then he quotes it again, and who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead, says Paul. But what does it say? It says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That's right. That is what it says. So then Paul understands it as that is 
the very word of faith which we are preaching. That's what's in your mouth. That's what's in your heart. The very word of faith. In the book of Deuteronomy, they thought it was the law that was going to deliver them. And who's going to go to heaven and get it and make us understand it? And who's going to bring it up out of the deep? Who's going to go to the other side of the ocean and go get it for us? Who is going to make us understand and do this law? Paul picks that up and says, it's in your heart. It's in your mouth. Just like it says at the end of the chapter in Deuteronomy. It's in your heart and in your mouth. That is faith. That's the very faith in Christ that we've been preaching to you. So Paul is arguing, you can go back in Deuteronomy and you can find this very cryptic statement that this is not, this righteousness is not too difficult for you. And you ask the question, well, yes, it is. How, how is it not too difficult? It's really, really difficult. It's 613 ordinances that I can't possibly do and nobody in 1,400 years did. And Paul is saying, Christ is the end of it. Christ is the telos of it. He is the culmination point of it. And so then when it said, who's going to go to heaven? That's to bring Christ down. Who's going to ascend into the deep, into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Who's going to do that? Obviously God. God is going to achieve all that. But then what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. And then Paul clarifies that is the word of faith that we are proclaiming, that we are preaching. Get it? How genius is that? I mean, Paul is just brilliant in his ability to go back into the Old Testament and explain those sort of cryptic things that God left there as hints that sat around for 1,400 years. And then Paul comes along and says, I know what that means. I know how you can achieve actual righteousness. It was revealed to him. Hmm? It was revealed to him. It was revealed to him. Oh, absolutely. What does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are preaching. That if you, here it is, here's the very word of faith. This is what it looks like. If you confess, by the way, that Greek word is actually equally profess. That word confess makes you think that you have to go to confession or something. You have to confess something. No, it's profess. It's a profession. It's an outward statement. This is what I believe. If you profess with your mouth Jesus as kurios, as Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Now look at the verse before that. He quoted from Deuteronomy. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. So you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you believe in what the Bible says about Christ, that he was raised from the dead, proof that he is the very son of God, and proof that God has accepted the sacrifice of Christ in your place. If that's what you believe in your heart, then you're going to profess with your mouth that Jesus is actually Lord. He is kurios. He's in charge of everything. He is the one who establishes salvation and righteousness and, in fact, the very history of the world. He's in charge of it all. For with the heart, 
man believes, resulting in righteousness. There we are. We're back to the righteousness thing. How do you establish your righteousness? Not by doing. By believing. By having faith in the finished work of Christ. With your heart, man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he professes, resulting in salvation. Because the scripture says, and now he's going to repeat from chapter 9, verse 33, what I said to you earlier. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be ashamed. See what Paul has done? He's bookend this whole treatise on righteousness by saying, believe. If you believe in Christ, you're never going to be shamed down by God. Belief in Christ is the only way to get the genuine righteousness of God, a righteousness that is so high and so holy that you simply can't do it. And even if you're a member of Israel and you have the law given to you, imposed on you, and you keep that law to the best of your limited ability, you still can't achieve your own righteousness by that methodology. True, genuine righteousness before God is a result always, always, always of faith in Christ. And with the heart, man believes. With the mouth, profession is made to salvation. And that's what it says back in the book of Deuteronomy. After God had laid out the law in front of Israel and then said, and you're going to fail the law, and I'm going to scatter you, and I'm going to bring you back to your land. I'm going to go find you, even if you're at the furthest points of the earth. I'm going to go find you, and I'm going to bring you back to your land, and then I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to circumcise your heart so that then you're going to be able to have faith in Christ, your king, So that he is going to establish you in righteousness. And finally you're going to achieve actual real righteousness. Not by the doing, but it's in your mouth. It's in your heart. Deuteronomy says it. Paul picks it up in Romans. Says it's still true. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. Profess Christ. Brilliant. (laughs) Just brilliant. With the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Because the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be ashamed. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. Everyone who believes. For the same Lord is Lord of all, both Jew and Greek. Everybody that comes to God is going to come through Christ. That's where actual righteousness is. He is the Lord of all, abounding in riches for all of those who call upon him. If you call upon Christ, if you call upon God, then he is going to abound in mercy and riches to you. But then the question is, verse 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But then how are they going to call upon him? In whom they don't believe. There's that faith word again. Look, Israel doesn't believe. Israel's trying to establish their own righteousness by the law. Because they don't believe in Christ, they're not going to call on Christ. They're not going to call on him because they don't believe on him. And how are they going to call on him on whom they don't believe? But then how are they going to believe in him if they haven't heard about him? 
Somebody has to tell about him. Someone has to explain him. Someone has to preach him. That's how faith comes. Somebody has to go out and talk about him. So then Paul is arguing, I think, inherently, that's why we apostles are preaching Christ to Israel. They don't know him. Remember earlier he said they don't have knowledge. They have zeal. They just don't know. And so they don't know him. They don't know the righteousness of God. And they don't know Christ. And so somebody has to tell them. And how are they going to hear without Caruso, a preacher, somebody to tell it? Somebody has to tell it in order for people to hear it, in order for people to understand it, in order for people to call on him. The calling is a result of the hearing, the understanding, because somebody preached it. But then verse 15 says, and how shall they, Caruso, same word, how shall they preach it unless they are sent? That's apostolos. That's the word for apostle. How are they going to preach it unless Christ sent them? Only if Christ sent them are they going to say, Christ is the answer. If they're not sent by Christ, they're going to say all manner of crazy stuff. If they're not sent by Christ, they're going to tell you what their rules, their regulations, their church, their denomination, what you got to do to achieve righteousness. If they're sent by Christ, they're going to point you to Christ. And how are they going to preach Christ unless they're sent by Christ? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. The glad tidings word there is euangelion. It's the word most often translated as gospel, as good news. Then even more interesting, agathos is the second word. And that is just the standard Greek word for good. It's just good. How beautiful are the feet of those who tell you the good news of good? It's just good. Sometimes you'll hear me up here say, it just gets gooder and gooder. Because we're preaching about a good God. We're preaching about a good deliverance. We're preaching about the goodness of God who will give you righteousness as a gift. And it doesn't get any gooder than that. By the way, the word beautiful comes from um, a root word that means at the right hour, at the appropriate hour, the appropriate season. And therefore, it came to be known as abundance. And therefore, it's translated how beautiful. But what it really means is how appropriate at the right time, at the right season, that somebody would come talk about Christ. So I'm not claiming that I have really good-looking feet. You might. I might. You don't know. But, but really how appropriate it is, how well-timed it is that God would send people, that Christ would send people to tell you the good things about good and about everything that God has done for you. And one of the things, the really important things that he has done for you is he has established you, has granted you righteousness in exchange for your faith in the finished work of his son. And it just doesn't get gooder than that. You got me? Gotcha. 
You understand that word better now? Yes. That's really all it was about. See, I told you at the beginning, after my first five-minute introduction, I said, now I'm going to talk for about an hour about this. And that's really all I did. I just demonstrated that the Bible says you can't do it. And even if you try to follow the law, it's not good enough. A miss is as good as a mile. If you break the law in any one place, you're guilty of the whole law, and therefore you're cursed by the law. The only way to establish righteousness before God is for him to grant you righteousness in exchange for faith in Christ. And that is the very essence of everything we believe. Grab a hymnal. Turn to hymn 50. Steve has had to go, so I'm going to lead this hymn. Ferris, Lord Jesus, I hope after everything you've heard this morning that that's what's on your mind. How good is Jesus? That's the good news of good. Let's sing about how good he is. listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God 
and study His sovereign grace.